Hello and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. Our guest today is Professor Peter Steinberg, who is a professor of marine biology at the University of New South Wales in Sydney and was the inaugural director and CEO of Sydney Institute of Marine Sciences, otherwise known as SIMS, from 2009 to 2020. Peter is also on the advisory group for OIO and has become an incredibly valuable advisor and confidant as we go on our journey of discovery. In this wonderful conversation, we get a real state of the ocean report from Peter. What is life like on that intersection between land and sea, which is increasingly being populated and urbanized from human development? We learn a lot about his journey in bringing Sims to life and the wonderful work it is doing now and will do into the future. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Peter. He is an incredible mind and a wealth of knowledge, and we find him incredibly inspiring, and I hope you do too. Thanks for tuning in to the Ocean Impact Podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. I'll wait for those birds to come. <laughs> it's rainbow lorikeets just going ballistic in the blossom outside. That's kind of nice. Yeah. Better than a lawnmower. <laughs> which will may which exactly. may very well happen. All my neighbours are off work at the moment, so uh, we may we might find a leaf blower coming out or a... Well, if we're lucky or something and uh, a siren goes by our house, you'll hear my dog howl. And he's got one of the great howls. I look forward to that. See, we'll see how it goes. Okay. Well, very pleased to have on the podcast today, Professor Peter Steinberg, uh, who among many accolades is a professor of biology at the University of New South Wales, the inaugural CEO and director of Sydney Institute of Marine Science and a member of the Ocean Impact Advisory Board. So thank you for being here, Peter. Great. Thanks, Tim. I'm delighted to be here and to uh, join you in the podcast. Yeah, well, I am too. And uh, there's a lot that we can talk about today. But I thought I'd like to start where I always like to start, which is who is the the person behind this this mystery guest? Some people out there may have heard of you, others may have not. So tell us a little bit about who Peter Steinberg is and (laughs) how he became to be in these uh, very valuable positions to protect planet ocean. Uh, Who is Peter Steinberg? Well, I guess, as you may hear, this is not an Aussie accent. Um, So I was born in the U.S., uh, actually in Brooklyn. So I'm a New Yorker by origin, Um, but went to university on the East Coast, became a scientist, did my Ph.D. in California um, and came out to uh, Australia on a Fulbright Fellowship, actually, just post my Ph.D., to work on kelp, to work on seaweed forests. And um, the intent was to come out here for nine months and then go back home. And um, while I was here, I met uh, the woman who's been my Australian wife for the past 30 odd years. I guess I should know that exact number, but 30 odd will do. Um, And so the standard statement about how I ended up in Australia is I uh, came for kelp and I stayed for K. Initially pursued kind of a standard academic career, was a postdoc at the University of Sydney, got an academic job at UNSW, teamed up with someone who is still a very close friend and colleague, Stefan Schellerberg. 
where we developed a, a pretty large research center at UNSW that was kind of a blend of marine ecology and microbiology. Some of that research led to uh, a spin-out company called Biosignal, where we tried to commercialize some antibacterial and anti-fouling technologies. Um, that eventually ended up in the hands of Unilever in England. And pretty much as soon as um, that happened, I was invited to become the inaugural director of Sims. This is kind of 2009. Um, and, you know, that's, I guess, been my substantive role in marine science um, for the past however many years that is, 10 or 11 years, while also still keeping a part-time gig in Singapore um, as a visiting professor. Um, and doing really quite a wide diversity of things in the, in the marine space. Um, and growing SIMS, I guess, into a significant node of marine science and research in Australia and playing an increasing role on the national and international stage as a consequence of that. Uh, and, you know, raising a daughter and several pets and all that other kind of stuff. Fantastic. And um, we're really glad that you ended up coming here for kelp, but staying for K because <laughs> your services that you're uh, performing down here are extremely welcome. Um, let's talk a little bit about Sydney Institute of Marine Science. Um, can you uh, give us a bit of an insight into the history of it and what its role and purpose is now? Yeah, sure. So, um, Sims is uh, based at Chowder Bay in Mosman, and it occupies um, the site of a former military base, a former naval base. Um, so in about 2005, um, the four major universities um, in Sydney started talking about whether they can combine forces in the marine science space. Um, and the notion being that if you join together, you have greater power. Are you hearing that email ting? Because my emails are coming in. I'll just... All clear at my end. Well, okay, fine. Then I won't mess with it. Sorry about that. Um, so in 2005, a discussion um, at that point kind of motivated by um, a guy named Frank Talbot, um, who was the initial chair of SIMS, um, and me and some of the other scientists um, pushed to try and form a collaborative marine institute. Um, it's not something that universities typically do. Um, universities tend to compete at that level rather than collaborate. But in the marine science sphere, it seemed like a desirable thing. And so all marine scientists want to lab by the sea or by the harbor. You know, it's in their blood, right? Um, you know, the, the world is full of these things. And, and um, you know, it re obviously really facilitates the research, but it also facilitates that kind of communal and collaborative coming together of scientists at one spot. So the challenge in Sydney was that no university could afford the land, <laughs> right? You know, how much does a chunk of land the size of Sim cost on the harbor side? Um, so the other thing that happened at that time was the federal government, when Howard was prime minister, um, created something called the Sydney Harbor Federation Trust. And it was their job to redevelop all the military lands around Sydney Harbor, North Head, Cockatoo Island, Chowder Bay, and others. And I guess, you know, the threat of invasion from wherever had diminished and it was time to do something else with the, the land. So we took advantage of that and um, talked to the Sydney Harbor Federation Trust, and we agreed that Chowder Bay would be a great place for that Marine Institute. So that happened. Initially, we were very small. 
Um, and then in uh, 2009, um, just after the financial crisis, in the midst of all the, the stimulus packages from the federal government, we got 20 odd million dollars to build the institute. Um, so really the first part of my um, career as director of Sims was as a building project manager for which I had kind of zero experience. Um, but you've been there, so it's worked out pretty well, right? Um, and over that past 10 years, we've built the facilities, we've developed a bunch of projects on the local, national and international scale. Um, and having built it, as I said earlier, to I think one of the substantial nodes of marine science uh, in Australia, I'll now kind of segue out of it in the next couple months and let somebody else take over and run it. Yeah, I think you're going to be leaving with your head held high and uh, a reputation that really does um, precede you. Uh, so, yeah, anyone who wants to go and see the site at Chowder Bay on Sydney Harbour, um, there's, there's tours and things. Can people just uh, head over there and check it out? How would you encourage people to interact with things? Yeah, I mean, we'd be delighted to have folks come out and have a look around. And as I think you know, Tim, we have a discovery center where you can do things like take a 3D dive in a kelp forest. Um, because it is a research facility, you know, we kind of keep a bit of control on comings and going. So folks are welcome, but they just need to call ahead and arrange something. And we can arrange to have a tour and let people have a look. Have you always had uh, a deep affinity with harbours and, and coastal ecosystems? You want to tell us a little bit about your um, interest in where land meets the sea, which is obviously hugely inhabited by, uh, by mass populations of people? Uh, I will. So I, in a lot of ways, that the focus on urban and coastal environments and how people interact with those environments is you know, something that I focused on over the last 10 or 12 years. So the thing that got me into science and ultimately marine science initially was a marine invertebrate zoology course that I took um, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Maryland. And I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with my life, but, you know, I was doing some science-y type things and uh, courses. And so I looked down a microscope and I discovered there were all these aliens living in the ocean. And just these, you know, this wondrous diversity of deeply weird critters that mostly, you know, I had no idea existed. And I think most people don't know existed, you know, things ranging from, you know, weird jellyfish larvae to strange crustaceans to a remarkable diversity of worms. Um, so that got me into marine science. And I think if, you know, as the years unfolded, I think if you are paying attention, then things like sustainability and conservation and the interaction of people with their ocean environment, you know, it's inescapable. And, and certainly in the last 10 or 12 years, I think just globally, that awareness has, you know, really risen to the fore and ramped up. So, you know, that has certainly affected um, the kinds of things that I do in science. And then I guess the two other things that have increased my focus in that area is one, I have this institute in Australia's largest city. Um, and that institute gives me a certain amount of institutional grunt to affect things like policy and the like. Um, and I guess the other thing is as I, you know, near the, the end of at least my formal career in these roles, 
um, I have increasingly wanted to try and focus on giving back and trying to fix things. And so, you know, all those things I think have kind of coalesced um, into a focus on urban and coastal environments. And I guess I'll add one other thing, which is strategically, you know, if you run an institution or if you run a company, you know, OIO will, you know, is confronting this, you need to find your niche. And certainly one of the niche, maybe it's niche in Australia. Either way, um, you have to find your niche. And clearly an opportunity existed for Sims in that urban marine and estuarine space. Yeah. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about the state of, of Sydney Harbour. This could be a bit of a precursor to a, a bit of a chat about the state of, uh, of the ocean in general. But people might be surprised to, to learn just how diverse Sydney Harbour is um, and how it's performing now versus uh, historically. So there's good news and bad news. And it depends on, you know, how far back um, you go historically. So 200 years ago, Sydney Harbour would have been largely unrecognizable to somebody who looks at it now. So it would have been full of oyster reefs that were busily filtering the water. Um, it would have had all kinds of coastal vegetation. It would have lacked all the armored shorelines, seawalls and the like that you currently see. And of course, there was not a city of five million people. Fast forward to the mid 1900s, um, you know, Sydney Harbour was pretty challenged. Um, lots of industrial activity um, on the harbour, you know, ranging from shipping to chemical processing to, um, to water treatment that was certainly less effective than it is now. Um, and so what's happened in the past 20, 30 years? Well, almost all those industries are now gone. Um, you know, Sydney um, commercially and economically is a very different place than it was 30, 40 years ago. Um, a lot has been done to improve the water quality. So a bunch of the sewage outfalls are, for example, now offshore rather than being deposited, rather than depositing primary treated sewage um, right in the midst of Sydney Harbor. Um, so there's no question that there's lots of improvements uh, in water quality. Um, so that's the good news. Um, and some of the diversity that you mentioned still remains in Sydney Harbor. You know, the kind of standard soundbite about Sydney Harbor is that it has a greater diversity of fishes than the entire United Kingdom. So that's fantastic, right? Um, you know, the downside is that um, the shorelines are mostly not natural anymore. So they're mostly um, built things. They're seawalls or cooling systems or just buildings of one sort or another. Um, there is a bunch of legacy contamination. Um, so if you go west of the Harbor Bridge, you'll see a bunch of signs, don't eat the fish that you catch. And that's because there are a bunch of dioxins and heavy metals and whatnot in sediments um, that still have an impact on the ecosystems of Sydney Harbor. So I guess if you had to really sum it up, you know, it's it doesn't look like the natural system that it did 200 years ago. Um, it was not so great early last century. We've made some real advances, but there's still a bunch of stuff that can be done to try and get it back to uh, a healthier and uh, increasingly functional natural ecosystem. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the projects that you've um, you've been behind to 
educate, inspire, and make tangible improvements to the um, to the biodiversity of the harbour. But let's go bigger. Let's go macro and 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 use that last conversation as this precursor to the state of of the world's ocean. Um, what can you tell us about that? A bit of a lay of the land of of what we're seeing with our 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 ocean. Yeah, so whenever anybody asks me that question, it always puts me in two minds. Um, so I, I think, am intrinsically an optimistic person. Um, and so I don't like to do the doom and gloom thing too much. And I also like to think about solutions, which is, you know, part of the reason for my invo- involvement in OIO. You know, having said that, there's no question that the state of the world's oceans are concerning. You know, Australia is, um, it's a wealthy country. Um, Its population density is relatively low compared to lots of other places. So in a lot of ways, um, you know, Australia is, you know, maybe as good as it gets across the world. And I say that with full knowledge of things like, you know, bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef and a bunch of the other problems that Australia um, faces. So, you know, there are a bunch of issues for the world oceans. You know, climate change is this major um, thing that impinges on all of us. Um, Most of that heat gets dumped into the ocean. Um, So there are enormous effects and continuing effects of climate change now, and that will be continuing. And so not only as on land do we need to deal with heating, but of course we need to deal with ocean acidification um, in our oceans. And you know, depending on how it goes, um, there are some pretty scary predictions um, around ocean acidification for 80, in the next 50 or 100 years. For ocean warming and things like marine heat waves, those effects are happening now. Um, and so, again, the predictions for the next 50 years, if we don't manage to both do some rehabilitation things in our ecosystems as well as start to um, put the lid on carbon emissions, um, you know, there are going to be some real challenges. A lot of this stuff scales with increases in population size. Um, so that's true of some of the drivers of uh, global warming, but it's also true of things like uh, fishing. So, um, you know, extractive industries generally continue on a, a pace across the world. Um, we have the issue increasingly recognized of uh, things like marine plastics and debris. Um, and, you know, some other kinds of pollutions or uh, pollution and contamination of the oceans, we're, we're doing a bit better. Um, so as population increases, um, you know, most of those things will scale with population and we'll need to deal with that. I forgot fishing. Yeah. Overfishing remains a... A, a, a real significant challenge across many places. So I'll do one more piece of doom and gloom, and then I'll flip a little bit, because I do think we have to have some some optimism around all this. One of the uh, things that really struck me um, in, in reading about the oceans and listening about the oceans, so do you know um, the story of the Kantiki and Thor Heyerdahl? Where so, they used celestial navigation to... Yeah. So there is this guy, the Scandinavian, whose theory was that um, the South Pacific, Polynesia, was colonized by folks from South America. 
Now, he turned out to be dead wrong, and all the human genetic evidence shows that he's wrong, but I think it was in the 60s. Um, he wanted to test whether the kinds of vessels, the kind of ships that those kind of people would have used to get from South America to Polynesia would actually work. So he built this raft, you know, this really pretty low-tech raft, and sailed it to, I forget where he ended up, but it was somewhere in Melanesia or Polynesia. And during that, um, he talked about just the abundance of life in the oceans. And to the extent that they often could not actually stand on deck because they kept getting whacked in the head by all the flying fish that were kind of cruising around above their raft. So it's a fantastic story about the diversity and abundance of oceans. Um, in the early 2000s, um, a guy named David Rothschild um, did something similar in a boat made entirely out of plastic called the Plastiki um, to highlight some of the issues of marine debris in the oceans. And when he did that, he literally saw one fish across that entire transit. So that says something about the changes in our oceans over the you know, intervening 50 or 60 years. So pretty striking. Now, having said that, um, there are a couple messages there. One is I think we're now aware that you have to manage not just the oceans, but you have to manage the interaction of people in the oceans, right? So this is not just an environmental issue, it's a socioeconomic and environmental issue. And so I think that awareness is a good thing. And I think that um, it's a, it, it provides a number of possible solutions and greater insight into what we need to do. You know, you can't ignore the people in the equation. And so as a consequence, you know, there is a bunch of new developments in things like green engineering, in restoration ecology, in um, kind of decision-making tools for how you manage environmental spaces, um, and in a bunch of other either um, policy developments, um, technologies, or approaches by governments to managing the oceans. And so some of that's real positive, some of that's less positive, and it varies a lot across the world. Um, but I think there are some solutions to some of those issues. And certainly organizations like OIO on the technology side have a role to play in coming up with those solutions. Yeah, um, and we'll talk a little bit about that um, shortly. Uh, a couple of things, I guess, that came up for me during that little conversation there. Um, I certainly find that reflection on just how much change has occurred on our watch as being a massive motivator for, for my own work and those personal accounts of of the changes that people have seen in their lifetime or between those generations is just such fuel for my fire and I'm assuming it's yours as well. So you've touched on, touched on a few of the sort of solutions that you really feel could trigger a, a much improved way of doing things. Is there anything even a bit more meta- higher level than that like what do you what how would you articulate what we as a species maybe need to go through in terms of a change in attitudes or realization of our relationship with planet ocean do you do you lend yourself to go to that to that level and and think at a bit more meta level what do we need to go through well i don't know maybe we need to go through a global pandemic <laughs> to change our way of thinking about the world um do I go through? 
I mean, somewhere kind of in the back of my mind is that kind of framing. But I got to say, I'm a pretty pragmatic kind of guy, you know, and maybe that just comes from, you know, navigating your way through both, um, you know, commercial spaces, academic spaces, government spaces, you know, over the past 35 years. So I definitely think about it as, you know, here's this fantastic thing, the oceans that we need to be concerned about. And here's a bunch of challenges and problems. How do we solve them? And, you know, the solutions range from, you know, practical things like restoring kelp to interacting with governments to reaching out to the community at large to raise awareness. And and so I, you know, I think about it at that level primarily. Um, and some of that's global, right? Some of those challenges are global, and so the solutions need to be global. But you know, what's the what's the expression? I'm pretty solutions focused these days. <laughs> and it's certainly one of the reasons why we were so um, pleased to to have you join the OIO advisory uh, group, um, and particularly this sort of intersection between your incredible experience in those range of sectors you just mentioned, but particularly the fact you have been CEO of a publicly listed biotech company. And that's certainly where I wouldn't mind sending our conversation now, because one of the great challenges that we're trying to tackle with OIO is how to turn great research and great science into scalable commercial solutions to create this business as unusual approach as we like to call it. So perhaps you wouldn't mind uh, enlightening us a little bit from your personal experiences and professional experiences in that um, in that context, sure. Um, so you know, my motivation for um, kind of taking a little bit of a diversion from what had to date been a standard academic pathway was a couplefold. One is by about that time I was interested in how I could make an impact on the world through my science. You know, I had a pretty successful academic career and have continued to have one, but. You know, certainly about then and increasingly, as you hear, I want to focus on solutions and on having an impact. Um, and so and I was also just interested, I don't know if I'm easily bored or just, you know, curious about other endeavors. Um, uh, you know, I was interested in what other walks of life kind of looked like. Um, and so as all that was kind of happening in the back of my mind, um, the research that I was doing um, with this microbiologist colleague that I referred to earlier kind of exploded in a particular direction. Um, and, you know, the essence of the technology was around seaweed produced chemicals that inhibited bacteria in a very specific way. So they inhibited um, bacterial communication systems. So they didn't kill the things. They kind of, in essence, it's not a completely true analogy, but probably works okay. It turns off bacterial nervous systems in an analogous way to if you take a neuroactive drug, it shuts down the functioning of your nervous system, or actually in some cases enhances it, but let's not go there. Um, so it's a, it was a, a really different way of approaching microbial control. And one of the, the really positive aspects of it was because you're not trying to kill the bacteria, they're much less likely to evolve resistance to those, hopefully, drugs, right? 
And in fact, you could use it as drugs. We also explored it as anti-failing um, technologies for, for you know boats to prevent things from settling. Because that was one of the things that the bacterial communication systems mediated was colonization of surfaces. So potentially very broad ranging. If it worked, it would have transformed the way that people deal with bacterial infections and other kinds of bacterial challenges. So the scope was potentially enormous. Um, and so I entered into that space first as research director um, within, um, you know, kind of uh, held within the university, you know, an entity held within the university. And then at some point we decided to spin it out. And in Australia, unlike some places, it's not unusual for early stage um, tech startups to list. Um, you know, it's not like listing on the NASDAQ where if you don't have a market cap of whatever, 100 mil or more, you know, people don't want to know you. But here, there are lots of small caps, right? And so we did that. And I was initially research director. And then um, when our initial inaugural CEO went back to um, Sweden, um, I became CEO of the company. So what lessons did I learn? Um, you know, I learned about the pointy edge of capitalism, right? Um, you know, so the startup space um, is, is um, you know, a lot of people who are willing to play the high risk, high reward game. Um, and so that was a whole different world for me. And it was intellectually pretty interesting, you know, and so I think that motivates a lot of what I do. Um, just, you know, this has to be intriguing intellectually. Otherwise, it's probably not something I'm going to pursue. Um, as you hear, I have other motivations about sustainability and impact. But, it, you know, it's got to kind of kind of tweak my curiosity. And so that did. And I dealt with a whole bunch of other people. Um, and so what did I learn? You know, I think I learned um, a lot of the lessons that scientists learn when they embark in that space, um, which is... It's about the science for a while, and then it's increasingly about a whole bunch of other things. You know, it's about how do you actually commercialize it? How do you breach that chasm between supporting a research project to supporting a company and, you know, going out and selling products? It's a bunch of technical problems about, you know, for example, in our case, how do you scale up the synthesis of those molecules um, at a commercially viable rate, you know, how do you partner? Who do you partner with? Um, you know, how do you deal with rapacious venture capitalists? Um, so it's all those things that, you know, OIO is, you know, is kind of constructed around to try and help startups to do. And, you know, for me, it was very much an experiential learning process. You know, there are some smart folks around that could help, but Really, I had to figure my way through all that. Um, and in the end, we came up against the global financial crisis and um, just couldn't raise enough money to keep that company going and, um, um, you know, keep it in-house. You know, so the technology got handed over and, you know, probably is a little quiescent in the hands of you know, this large multinational um, and so there's another message there, which is, you know, nobody expected the global financial crisis, right? You know, stuff happens. And if you need, if, if you're going to keep going, then somehow you need to deal with that in exactly the way that 
I'm sure there are a hell of a lot of early stage startups that are now trying to deal with COVID um, and what's that done, what that has done to the world economy. So that was that in retrospect sounded very much like a stream of consciousness kind of litany of things that, you know, I experienced as um, we developed the science and developed that company. But, you know, that's kind of my initial thoughts on, you know, what that did for me. Actually, one other thing. I'll add one other thing. So, as I said earlier, when that company ended, I almost immediately flipped back to being an academic and then director of Sims. And boy, I got to say that the experiences and the skills that I developed while living in that more commercial space have proved enormously valuable in running Sims and are probably a whole set of tools that mostly academics don't have. So you're therefore passionate about seeing science enter the commercial world. Is is that something that um, you know you're passionate about now? How do you feel about it, knowing your own personal experiences of how you know how scalable that can become, and what what and therefore what maybe research institutions will require if that is where you would like to see them heading. So I think I'd put it a little bit differently. I'm passionate about science having an impact on the world. And one of the ways clearly where it will have an impact is through the commercialization of science-derived products or science-derived methodologies. So, you know, Biosignal was one such experience. You know, some of the other projects we're involved in, like Living Seawalls, you know, that has clear commercial opportunities. Some other things, I'm not quite sure what the commercial and business model is for them, and they may have to have impact um, along different paths. And that's okay, too. You know, sometimes that science just needs to affect policy. Um, but so, but impact is the thing, and commercialization is clearly one of the processes by which that can happen. I think you just provided a beautiful segue to one of my other subject lines there, which was about Living Seawall. Can you enlighten the listeners about Living Seawall, where it's at now and where you'd like to see it in the future? Yeah, so a little bit of background. Um, so one of the ways I think about the marine environment is through habitat structure. So what do I mean by that? So, you know, on land, habitats are dictated often by the physical structures living or non-living in those habitats. You know, Sydney as a habitat is dictated by the buildings in Sydney. A eucalyptus forest is dictated by the physical structure of those trees. So it's the same way in the marine environment. And in the marine environment, that structure is created by corals or by kelp or by the built marine environment, as they say, right? Seawalls, cooling systems, jetties, piers, new islands. Um, so those things provide the structure of those habitats, and it's often that physical structure that dictates an awful lot about the rest of how those habitats and ecosystems function. Um, so one approach um, that we've developed at SIMS, as well as other people across the world, is to deal with the built environment, with the artificial structures that now cluster along our shorelines everywhere. Um, and we typically build things without much thought to the environmentally, the environmental sustainability of those structures, how they affect ecosystem function, how they affect biodiversity. 
So a great example of that, I'm now finally coming back around to living seawalls. Um, a great example of that is uh, the seawalls that um, dot or coat really um, our coastlines in Sydney and everywhere else in the world. So those are built to essentially protect the land from the onrushing tide, as it were, from the oceans. And you can see them across all of Sydney. And in fact, about 50% of Sydney Harbor are not, is now armored. They're now seawalls or similar sorts of structures, right? So most of that habitat that meets the water is, in fact, not natural at all anymore. It's built. So we would like to try and enhance the ecological and environmental properties of that built environment. You know, mostly we don't build things particularly effectively in that context. They're vertical. That has some challenges. They tend to be flat and featureless. So there are a bunch of things you can do to primarily increase the physical heterogeneity of those surfaces. And so to do that, we, um, in collaboration primarily with a design group in, um, in Melbourne, Reef Design Lab, have started producing these um, seawall tiles. So they're panels about 60 centimeters across. They're, the molds are 3D printed and they're printed to mimic features of the natural environment. So we can make tiles that have little mini tide pools. We can make tiles that have you know, a bunch of knobs and crevices and niches that increase the complexity. So if you then bolt those things onto the seawalls, you get a more natural environment and you get greater biodiversity, you, get, you return a bunch of ecosystem functioning to those other, otherwise kind of featureless um, seawalls. And so there's probably 15 years of research now that has gone into this. And we're finally at the stage where we're starting to scale up and starting to actually sell tiles on a commercial basis. So that's one example of um, how you know, we think that the commercial path is a really suitable one to get a, a more sustainable environmental outcome in this case. And, you know, we hope that we can really scale up in a big way and cover, you know, kilometers and tens of kilometers of seawalls, both in, sea, in Sydney and throughout the world with our living seawalls tiles. Yeah, and we wish you um, immense success with that project. And Certainly when you look online and you watch any of the videos showing the installation and highlighting the outcomes of this particular innovation, it's just remarkable. Uh, it's one of those ones that's that beautiful sort of, ah, surface of a you know, sandstone seawall and you look at the incredible diversity that then just is attracted to the tile. It's just a beautiful, sensible piece of, of technology. So well done on that one. I saw in the press this week um, uh, a real moonshot project that uh, that Sims is involved with in conjunction with Southern Cross University, which was this cloud brightening project yeah, right. up on the Great Barrier Reef. Um, this is getting into the uh, yeah really big and illustrious projects. Do you want to tell us a little bit about um, that particular project or, or what you see maybe the result of increased attention around coral bleaching and a real... Uh, you know, a rush to come up with something which can stop this uh, devastating prediction of, of coral reef loss in, in the next uh, decade or two. 
Um, so you always ask me these specific questions, and I feel the need to provide a certain amount of background here before I answer the specific question. Um, so in this case, <laughs> the background is, um, you know, in the last, I don't know, five to ten years, still pretty recently, um, there has been something of a transformation amongst a lot of us who are interested in marine conservation and sustainability in our approaches. So historically, the primary approaches in the marine space to try and manage things was sort of just that. So we did marine protected areas, or we managed fisheries, or we um, you know, managed um, entry of pollution into the water. So to a, to a significant extent, you know, passive is probably not the right word, but maybe reactive as opposed to proactive. And so in the last, as I say, five to 10 years, people have suddenly, you know, really come to the conclusion that we need to be way more interventionist, you know, that we need to get out there and actively fix things. And so Living Seawalls is like that, right? We're out there putting stuff in the water. Our kelp restoration project is like that. You know, we're going to get out there and restore kelp forests. So that has um, influenced the way that people think about the Great Barrier Reef as well. And so, you know, you and your listeners may remember a couple years ago, there was a very large sum of money that was given to the Great Barrier Reef Foundation, $440 million, um, to start to do things on the reef um, following some of the major bleaching events. About $100 million of that um, has been given to something called the Reef Restoration and Adaptation Program. And it's a very interventionist kind of program to a significant extent. And so there are a bunch of things they're trying to do in that program to rehabilitate, restore, and increase resilience of, in this case, the GBR. Um, so in that space, one of the things that is being explored is this project that you mentioned, um, cloud brightening. And so the notion behind cloud brightening is if you can generate greater cloud cover over portions or maybe all of the Great Barrier Reef, you reduce um, radiant sunlight that hits the water and hits those corals, and you reduce ocean warming locally around the GBR. And so the guy who's doing this, the guy who's leading this project, is a guy named Dan Harrison, um, who's been working with and at Sims for a number of years and has just recently got an academic position at Southern Cross University, so hence the joint uh, announcement about this project. And he's um, kind of in the prototype stage of this, but what he's done is he goes out on a boat and he takes modified snowmaking machines, right? And so it sucks up salt water, sprays it up in the air, and the notion is that that will then provide the nuclei for greater cloud formation. And he's kind of at the stage where he's testing, okay, you know, how much can I get up in the air? How many salt crystals? How much spray? What are the size of the droplets? And it turns out that with the machines that he's got already, he can kind of get them to go three, four, five kilometers, you know, downstream from the boat. So he can get pretty decent coverage with machines that are still not the size that they would ultimately be um, when you do this for real at large scales. And so he's not quite at the stage of measuring how does this translate into cloud increased cloud cover, but it's certainly moving in that direction. So it's an example of what we call geoengineering because it's at kind of this very big scale um, and you're meshing, messing around with fundamental 
um, characteristics of the planet, right? Hence geoengineering, in this case, cloud cover. And, you know, it's one of the things that's being explored to try and reduce the impacts of global warming on the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah, I think that uh, notion of, of being interventionist, I could imagine in the early days of those discussions, a lot of moral and ethical decisions need to be made there, but with such clear acknowledgement and understanding of the state of play comes this absolute, let's throw everything at interventionists because otherwise we lose, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's where a lot of folks, you know, in the marine space have got, and certainly I have. And, you know, absolutely, there's some pretty fundamental ethical and moral issues that need to be confronted. I mean, for geoengineering, but perhaps even more so for some of the more biological interventions that folks are talking about, you know, ideas about assisted evolution and do you try and force adaptation of corals using a variety of both natural and less than natural technologies. You know, there's discussions about, you know, do you do environmental genetically modified corals just because otherwise the GBR disappears? You know, those are pretty serious conversations to have. And, you know, those trigger all kinds of ethical and moral decisions that have to be made. Um, and one of the one of the think challenges that we face in that whole uh, in that whole space in that whole interventionist space is, as I guess happened with um, medical biotechnologies, in some cases the progress of the technology significantly outstrips the kind of moral and ethical discussions that need to underpin the actual implementation of those technologies. So we're also very cognizant of the fact that those two things have to progress in parallel. Um, you know, it's about social license, right? You know, you may have the technology, but you sure need the social license to apply or not apply those technologies. Mm. Yes, and I'm sure that'll be a feature of uh, OIO's journey into the future as well. I think um, that conversation was just a nice little, um, you know, sort of entry point to this next question I wanted to ask you. At, at one end, the big moonshot idea of being able to brighten cloud cover over the GBR to prevent coral breaching versus being able to probably go and get your hands on a 3D printer and create yeah. habitat in your local coastal environment. So I'd love to just sort of ask you this question about, you know, all these ends of the spectrum and everything in between. Could you articulate some advice, some hints and tips for people out there who may be these innovative, disruptive thinkers, whether they've got the tools to go moonshot or whether they've just got a garage they can go and tinker in. Like, what would you say to people who really want to get out there and develop solutions with their own two hands? Um, you know, I think that although I'm focused on the ocean space, as are you, um, there are a bunch of standard uh, messages around um, technology development and startups, right? And, you know, one of them is be clear about how you're identifying the problem, you know, so don't come up with a solution for a problem that doesn't exist. Um, you know, so be clear about what it is that you're trying to solve and be clear why it is that that issue needs a solution. Now, I don't think that's real hard in a lot of ways, right? Because as we were talking about earlier, there are an awful lot of challenges. Um, you know, be, know your own capacity. Um, know what you're good at. 
And if there are a bunch of things that you need in doing what you need to do um, to develop your innovation, um, be very willing to reach out to people and get the people on board. And I think OIO is, is doing that pretty well. Um, and, you know, so for me, um, you know, I knew a lot about science. There were a bunch of commercial aspects that I didn't know so much about. You know, I'm a relatively quick study, so I could pick things up. But, you know, I had people on our board who were really serious commercial heads, and and, and we outsourced a bunch of things from, you know, uh, intellectual property um, protection and financial things and marketing, you know. So get the skills that you need to develop it. Um, but I also think that, you know, what would I advise people? In some ways, um, there's an awful lot of self-selection in people who go down that entrepreneurial startup kind of path. And the people involved have what is probably the primary um, criterion, which is, you know, a fascination and drive to try and develop new innovative solutions to problems that they see, in this case, the oceans. And you talked about moonshots versus garage band tech. Um, and, you know, different people will be attracted to different things. And, you know, the paths to those different solutions can be very different. Um, you know, the bigger the proposed solution, usually the longer the path and the more challenging it is. Not always, but often. So, you know, you need to think through how long do you want to be doing this before you get to the end point uh, and the like. Um, again, that was a little bit of a stream of consciousness, I think, but not sure that there was a lot of insider advice in there. But that's my that's my initial thoughts about it. Mm, I like it. So here we are in April 2020. We are in the midst of something that certainly my generation and uh, and others have never experienced before. Yeah, just in closing, uh, we're going to wrap things up pretty soon. How are you feeling and reflecting upon your career, where humanity is at now, what this this great pause or significant disruption means? Um, yeah, start to wrap things up, I guess, with some some final thoughts and and, and ideas there. Um, sure. So I'll um, I'll do the personal piece, and maybe then the human you know the broader humanity piece. Um, so as I alluded to, I'm at a stage in my career where I'm looking to kind of wind down and um, live a little less intense professional life than I have previously. You know, I feel good about it. It's the right time for all kinds of, you know, personal and professional reasons. Um, I'm feeling good about my career. You know, I've accomplished a bunch of things. I mean, one of the things that we haven't touched on is, you know, over the course of um, my career in Australia, you know, I've trained, I don't know, 60 or 70 postgraduate students and postdocs who have gone on to you know, colonize marine science in Australia and elsewhere. And so, you know, I can start to withdraw knowing that there will be a strong um, legacy, I guess, you know, of the work that I've done over the past 30 or 35 years. Um, 
And so it's time for me to, um, you know, not to withdraw completely, but to do some other things, not feeling like, yeah, you know, I did a pretty good job on a bunch of things. I screwed some things up as well, but, you know, all in all, I did pretty well. Um, how do I feel about humanity? Um, so I have a, a, a millennial um, a, a daughter who actually is in the household now during the COVID time. Um, you know, their generation, or at least her and her friends, you, you know, seem pretty freaked out about the future in a lot of ways for some understandable reasons. I think that we, you know, as, a, as global humanity, have not really come to terms with um, the consequences of, you know, our population being, you know, in, in, arriving in a place that's three times what it was in, I don't know, 1970, you know, 10, 11 million people, which we're clearly on a path to do. I think that has enormous consequences for everything we do on this planet. And I don't know that we've really come to terms with that or, or are working on solutions at a pace that's fast enough to to deal with that. So I think there's some pretty significant challenges um, coming down the pike. Um, a wise older friend of mine once told me that the way that humanity tends to deal with challenges is if you use the analogy of hurtling towards a wall, they do nothing until they're three inches from the wall. And then they make a sudden right or left turn that turn that represents the solution to whatever the challenge is. You know, the problem with that is every now and again, um, you don't turn and you hit the wall. And so I do have some concerns that, you know, the pace at which we're reacting to things is not rapid enough given the challenges that we currently face. Um, hope I'm wrong, um, but I think it's for... Um, your generation and my daughter's generation to, I think, really try and push that pace. And I'm encouraged by the kinds of things um, that I see people doing, and I hope it happens fast enough. Yeah, thank you for those words, Peter, and for your time today on the podcast. Um, would you like to tell people where they can go for any more information about you or any of those particular projects that you referred to in today's podcast? Yeah, I mean, sure. And and thanks, Tim, for having me on. And, you know, I look forward to continuing to see OIO develop and, you know, playing some role in that. Um, yeah, if you want to check out me or check out Sims, the simplest thing to do is to just go on the Sims website, which I should probably know off the top of my head, but don't. But if you Google, Google Sims Marine, it'll come right up. Sims.org.au. Thank you. <laughs> Not really that complicated, was it? <laughs> Very simple. Look, it's been a pleasure um, you know, being able to work with you on OIO through your capacity there and just to learn more about all that you've achieved throughout your career and that incredible legacy that you leave behind. So I, I thank you on behalf of Planet Ocean and all its inhabitants, Peter. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Great to talk.